From Wall Street to Main Street, there are stories to be told. Where knowledge learned on the street is as powerful as knowledge learned on the streets. This is the Financial Recon Podcast, where we introduce you to the people, places, and things that have helped shape our environment and will help shape yours. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Financial Recon Podcast. This is Mike Molotars. One of the things I've learned during my career is that investing is like going out to dinner with your family or friends. Everyone has a different taste. Well, over the last 20 or so years, investors' palettes have evolved and what was once thought of as a bad is continuing to gain steam. What I'm referencing is ESG investing. So what exactly is it? Simply put, it focuses in on the environmental, social, and governance aspects of a company similar to how any investor may focus on fundamentals or technicals. In this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Liz Simi, co-founder of Honeytree Investment Management, whose passion for ESG is hard to top. Let's join the conversation. Liz, thanks a lot for uh, joining us from uh, sunny Toronto. It is actually sunny here today. It was supposed to rain, but it is <laughs> it is sunny and warm-ish. Well, that's the opposite here. It's actually, we, we're getting thunderstorms. Um, I appreciate you coming on because one of the biggest questions I always get from folks is around, like, what is ESG? And there's no better authority, in my opinion, than you on this matter. So could you just start off by just explaining your background with it and then what is ESG? So my my discovery of ESG um, actually started when I was at my old firm and in, in as a portfolio manager. And we had a couple names, which they don't really matter which names they are in the portfolio. And I didn't didn't like that they were there. And I think one was related to, to arms manufacturing um, and the other, you know, had some, it, so it, they were, they were fundamentally qualified for the portfolio, but I believed it's not that the companies were bad. I just, I felt that there was a risk with them that wasn't told in the financials. And I didn't know, I'd never heard of ESG. This is in like 2015, 2016, never heard of it. Um, I, you know, I, I do a lot of done a lot of things in life that are ESG outside of investing, whether it's volunteer work or, you know, being on community boards and stuff, but I never, it was never a conversation in investing because in investing, the only thing that's supposed to matter are the financials. Right. And, and so fast forward a couple of years, I actually spent a year as an advisor. I thought I left being a portfolio manager at an asset manager and I wanted to serve folks. And I, I live in downtown Toronto um, and a lot of prospective clients and clients that showed up happened to be gay and lesbian couples. And their first, this was in 2016, their first request was no questions asked. We want an ESG portfolio. We don't want any of this in it. We've gone to a bunch of advisors. They have not been able to build a portfolio for us. So we're asking you. So I, as part of that, got to do due diligence. And it's funny, I'm, I was not a stock picking advisor, even though I'd come from a stock picking role. I was a big fan of allocation um, to SMAs and, and good vehicles. And obviously, I'm an active 
investor, a big believer in active, not anti-passive though, but big believer in active. But I basically got to do an entire review of all the equity and fixed income strategies available to retail in Canada. And the answer is there was none. There was no ESG. There was no vehicle that fit what the end client wanted. And the end client knew that they could buy stocks, invest in the market, but they did not need to hold these companies that both went against their values and they saw as risks. So I got kind of a a really direct consumer intro or like end client need experience with it. And I got to see what was out there. Anyways, I ended up back at the non-ESG asset manager um, for a few years and we launched ETFs and, you know, we, we got on some US SMA platforms and then I started to to realize and I met my co-founder who's a longtime ESG person. I real we realized that there was an opportunity to build a true ESG active strategy because there just wasn't that many available globally. Um, and so, but but the approach that we took was what a lot of ESG, and I'm doing like air quotes here, <laughs> what a lot of ESG strategies have been historically are values-based or best in sector. And so what that means is um, I'm an investor and I want to hold a portfolio with no guns or weapons. And that's, but otherwise I want the portfolio to be the same, or I want to hold a portfolio of, um, I I don't want to hold X, Y, Z, want to exclude those, but otherwise we're going to do traditional portfolio management. And best in sector is what a lot of active and systematic strategies are, which is we're going to do our traditional portfolio management, but we're going to exclude some of the worst by sector. And we're just going to make sure the worst ESG offenders by sector. So mm-hmm. what we wanted to do, and, and we're not the only firm in the world who does this, we're just um, uh, one of the newer, cooler ones, um, is, <laughs> is say, you know what, this ESG data, environmental, social governance data is being treated as separate from the financial data that all the investment decisions are being made from. And we think it's better if you take that non-financial data workforce data, environmental, like water and emissions and stuff. And you assume it's fundamental company data because it's tied to operations and bottom line and integrated in your in your security selection, how you pick stocks um, equally, not secondary, not on a separate team, not by a bunch of ESG experts who are not portfolio managers, but the data becomes a portfolio manager tool, just like the financial data. So that's the long story of what ESG is to us. And the argument that we're trying to make, which is it's not, it's not like the ESG buckets are wrong. Everything doesn't fit nicely in an environmental bucket or governance bucket or social bucket. It's much more complex and interrelated. And I find folks not in the investment industry get that right away. They understand intuitively how turnover, retention, pay equity, reducing hazardous waste. They understand how that impacts the bottom line. Us in the investment industry, with all our financial models and our our belief that shareholders matter the most, don't quite get it as easily, which is where you see that disconnect. So we were just really trying to build a product to serve that end client, whether they're an advisor or an institution or or an advisor's end clients who, who who, who, like me, believes that there's a risk in holding companies that do bad things. Um, And they also want their investments to do good stuff. It's part and parcel. It's not just, I want my investments to to do good for the world. It's there's a risk 
in holding companies with awful governance or awful treatment of their employees or who don't who aren't innovating fast enough on the environment because they will be left behind. Um, so that's that's really what we're trying to solve. And I think that's, you know, my favorite end client insight. It doesn't matter who they are, um, who wants this stuff. It's they believe companies not destroying the world will outperform in the long run. And and so we're, there's still this disconnect between selling it only as a values based or selling it only as a thematic or selling it only as a the folks who want this want it across their whole portfolio. They understand how the whole system works in the world and how it's not just the government who's going to solve our environmental problems. It's us and the corporations and communities and the government all together. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's my version of the issue. <laughs> so um, interpreting this is like company X. They We want to make sure they're being good stewards, let's say, to the environment because your perception of a threat would be like 25, 30 years from now that they're getting a class action lawsuit because they found some chemical that was in one of their products and so forth. Not going to name any names, but that just happened recently. I saw from the Supreme court. So that happens all the time, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Especially in, in, in um, retroactive things, right? So you make mm-hmm. paint, paint, for example, lead paint, mm. made illegal and tobacco, right? All the tobacco companies are paying for the medical remediation post them being declared bad for. So this happens in every industry. Um, some of it's historical and you can't do anything about it. Some of it's very immediate and, uh, you know, folks are covering up legal issues. But it, it really is. It, it's regulation risk. Right. What if they ban when when they ban single use plastics, when they incentivize or ban um, diesel and, and, and focus on EVs, all this stuff is. It, it, it it's risk, right? Not being able to fill your your employee, you're not being able to hire enough people to serve your customers is risk. You know, having a high turnover, um, having worker safety issues, right? There's regulatory mm-hmm. costs that come with all of that stuff. Um, and, and also like people don't want to work for you if everybody's getting injured and being docked pay and doesn't have bathroom breaks and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and that the investment world would say that doesn't matter. People are just capital, you know, they just need to work harder and they're replaceable. That's not the truth. Now that's the truth in the, in the financial world, because we don't, we don't think people and their feelings matter in terms of productivity. Um, but it's much more complicated that, than that, whether you're an MD at a bank or you're a frontline retail employee, how you're engaged in your company's purpose is what drives the bottom line. And, and that's, that's kind of what we, we sum it up as is stakeholder governed purpose driven companies, the companies mm-hmm. that don't just care about their shareholders, they realize their employees and their customers, the community, the environment, all those things are intertwined with their bottom line. So you just kind of segues into a discussion. I know we had probably, it might be a year ago on t- uh, Twitter when we talked about the difference between activism, being like an activist investor versus, you know, having the kind of homegrown concerns about or homegrown implementation of ESG policies. Could you kind of explain the difference between the two? Because I found it really interesting. So 
we are not activist investors. I was raised at a firm that didn't even meet management to avoid being biased by management. So we're 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 a little unique. <laughs> in that. Um, we will meet with with teams for engagement and stuff like that. But what's happened in ESG is since the ESG teams are not the portfolio managers, they need something to do. And so they do their ESG research and analysis and risk and all that stuff. But they also do all the proxy voting and the engagement. And so what has happened is, and this is this is good, by the way, we don't, I'll explain why we don't participate in it. But a lot of large and small investors, they're, they're, they're voting their proxy and engagement teams, um, the ESG folks, usually women, um, are spend, they hold, like whether you're BlackRock or any other asset manager, you could be holding hundreds and hundreds of companies or Canadian pensions, for example, US pensions. They, instead of divesting, so they'll hold onto a company that does bad stuff or refuses to disclose basic data and they'll use their power to do, um, uh, to, to get, to get votes on the docket where these companies need to are forced to disclose their diversity data, um, or their environmental data or do something else related to ESG. So there's, there's a huge part of ESG, especially in the large institutions and the larger asset managers is this activity engagement and proxy voting. And they, when you look at their ESG reports from the biggest ESG managers, they don't talk about how they integrate ESG data into their security selection, but they talk about all their votes. So it's a, uh, it's in Exxon this week. Now I don't know the firm who took over the board. Um, I, I didn't actually Google their ESG-ness because there's a lot of overlap between the real activists and the ESG activists, right? Mm-hmm. Like most of the ESG activist investors are ex-activist hedge funds investors doing an ESG strategy. Um, but that's, you know, they, I guess they have three board seats that they got because every enough investors at Exxon were like, well, there's not enough transitioning going. So that's that's one way that ESG is executed. The way we do it is we, we prefer to hold companies that we don't need to force them to do stuff. Um, we prefer to, because we only hold 20 companies, We they now they all mess up and do bad stuff, but their board and their management is competent enough to fire the CEO or do whatever, take the right steps, disclose the problems, because everybody has problems. It's mm-hmm. when you don't disclose them and hide them because you think it's not impacting. And two years later, the Atlantic writes a big article about how stupid you were. That's an issue. So, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's very, a, a lot of ESG at the institutional level is, is engagement in, in some of it is highly effective. And whether that's the nuns groups going after gun manufacturers, um, I mean, a, a ESG essentially in, in impact investing was birth. Sorry, you can hear my kid, my husband yelling at the kids to go back to school. We're um, a family show. But, uh, <laughs> so during the apartheid, um, there was a whole bunch of corporations who were uh, American or international involved in South Africa. And what a lot of the religious, because it's actually the Quakers and the nuns did, is they launched a campaign to get all the shares because they have lots of many millions and billions of dollars, uh, foundation money and, 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 you know, investable assets. They got all the large corporations who were participating in South Africa to stop and that actually helped end the apartheid. 
So that, that, that was kind of one of the first big movements and it existed before, but that, that's a really great example of what these mission driven. Now the mission driven investors who did that were very different than the large asset <laughs> managers, um, pretending to be mission and driven investors now, although, although it's kind of the same tactics, but it's, uh, you know, and that, that's why ESG is confusing because ESG really just means environmental social governance data, but we lump everything non-financial right? There's traditional financial stuff. And then there's everything ESG. Um, we lump it all. Um, but we, we, you know, we, we personally believe that the biggest benefit of ESG is the standardization of that workforce data and that environmental data into the financials so that we as portfolio managers can assess a company's ability to improve racial diversity or gender diversity in leadership to save money by reducing water use and, and building the technology to do that um, and being leaders at it, right? So we're, we end up holding the companies that don't need to be forced to disclose their diversity data because they've already been disclosing it since the beginning, um, since it was required. And it, I just find it fascinating. There's so many companies out there who refuse to release the data that they've already released to the Department of Labor because they've already released their gender and racial diversity by level for the mm-hmm. past four or five years to the Department of Labor. Um, and that's what a lot of the votes are is for them to release it. And, and somebody, somebody on Twitter yesterday was like, Liz, did you listen to the Coke, the CEO and somebody else at Coke were talking about ESG? And I well, obviously Coke does not make our screen. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, but so, so I took a look at their stuff and it's really funny. They're one of the folks who had got forced to vote last year that they had to finally release their diversity data. So when you look at their publications, all the companies we hold have like five-year histories of, of this stuff. When you look at Coke, it's just got the 2020 numbers in the table at the end of the report. So that's kind of standard, right? Mm-hmm. And that's okay. It's just they didn't think that it was that important. Whereas companies like some of the semiconductors or Cummins or you know even Costco have been releasing this stuff freely for a while. And it's tricky because the large ESDG data sets don't um, publish this data, right? So that's mm-hmm. why the companies can get away a with it. Um, but it's really going to change a lot in the next four or five years. And the U.S. is leading. The U.S. is leading on workforce diversity disclosure way ahead of Europe, way ahead of Canada. Um, Europe and Can- Europe's ahead on the gender. Mm-hmm. Europe's been focusing on gender diversity for longer. But the U.S. has just come straight in the last four years. has nothing to do with Biden, by the way. Has really has really gotten ahead of everybody in terms of the details that we need as a company to assess, you know, and, and why would we assess this data? Like, why do I care how the the percentage of women in leadership in an organization matters? Well, it matters to me because it shows the board is competent and able to create goals and achieve them. Doesn't matter if it's gender diversity, racial diversity, water use, increased operations, whatever. It shows competence. There's lots of companies who put out goals and don't achieve them, right? It's Mm -hmm. this data allows me to see the effectiveness of the organization beyond their financials to kind of see how it all fits together. And so that's, that's what we're doing. We're not adding a bunch of restrictions and saying companies are bad. We're, we're adding a bunch of data and saying this is going to help us find the stakeholder governed purpose driven companies, the very select few companies whose entire purpose is to serve their customers and mm-hmm. and their their employees because that's why they were founded and and that's how they make money and it's uh um, we think it's it's a little it, it, we think we're communicating it uh, pretty uniquely 
Um, but we hope that it's the future of investing, right? We hope this, what we do and considering non-financial data becomes mm-hmm. instead of a separate ESG module at the CFA becomes <laughs> part of the CFA curriculum, right? Right. Well, with that, do you think that we, in the next 10 years, we'll see a standardization of the ESG data along the lines of gap or non-gap reporting? Yeah. Um, Coca-Cola's report, 2020 sustainability report was audited by EY. Okay. So I don't normally see it in the US, but a lot of our European companies that we end up seeing um, have PwC or EY fully auditing their non-financial disclosures. Um, there's, it's really confusing. There's a, been a bunch of different working groups globally unrelated to accountants for about a decade trying to standardize stuff, mostly environmental because nobody actually cares about people, even ESG. Um, and the problem is uh, we're, uh, emissions are kind of standardized, right? So we have a pretty-ish standardized reporting for scope one, two, and three emissions. Um, it's the rest of the environmental stuff, the water use, the, the hazardous waste, the using recycled material to create things, recycling and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that all these working groups globally have, have just all been talking and, and they mostly talk about like, not just this, this environmental data, but they want companies to report risks and they want portfolio managers to report environmental risks and all this kind of stuff, which is, that's not the future of standardization. The future of standardization is uh, if you go look at the Coca-Cola sustainability report that is audited. Okay. There's a bunch of stuff in there that's totally useless. Like, employee donations and stuff like that. But you'll see in it, and I, there, there's a whole bunch of other examples where they've got five-year histories. So we've got mm-hmm. audited five-year histories of water use, audited five-year histories of emissions. We've got audited standardized. Now it's not perfectly standardized, but you can see how um, women in leadership roles, women in, in, in vice president roles, racial diversity in those levels, that can be standardized pretty well. Mm-hmm. And since we have all the Department of Labor data coming out in the U.S., which has all this raw data. Um, anyway, so so here's what happened. The IFRS took it over. So the IFRS in the fall announced they were taking over the standardization of this data, but they had already been doing it. So the auditors have already been auditing these disclosures, and they, they, I, I, they're mostly in the GRI framework, just to be super confusing. Um, but that's... <laughs> Wouldn't that's, be finance without acronyms. Yeah. It's, it, it really is... The IFRS is going to, and they're the big four, is going to standardize the data in about five years. Um, workforce diversity, turnover, pay equity, and all the environmental stuff that I've mentioned will be maybe seven years will be standardized in the financials. Um, in in it took took me a while to get there, but really, it can't continue to exist. It doesn't. It, the auditors are the ones who are going to get paid to audit it. So they have a big interest in participating in this. Just like financial statements, you got to pick and choose somewhere what's going to go in them. And it's pretty easy to make an argument that the data that's going to go in there is this, um, the DOL report. So it's called the EEO1 report. If you Google it, you, some companies have it publicized, others have it in their sustainability reports, others hide it. That's going to be the template that is the template already for the U.S. audited firms. And in anyways, it's the accountants who have already standardized it. Now it's just about getting everybody to report that stuff. And then eventually from an accounting 
uh, standards perspective, it'll be clearly laid out um, by the IFRS and and all those folks. I'm not I'm not an accountant. I don't know a bunch of that stuff. Um, but it, that's what's going to transition specific sets of ESG standardizable data to the financials. And then like just like fundamental financial research, you'll be able to buy other more detailed research from a whole bunch of different places. But there will be non financials in the financial statements. And that will um, cause a leap for uh, in, in, you know, it's not the thing is it's not, we, we talk so much about board diversity, board diversity. is just like eight people or 10 people. It's really easy to get a 30% three woman out of 10 on a board. Um, it, it's so it's, it, and we're still in the ESG world. We're still looking at exact team and board diversity because not enough companies are reporting below that, but they won't have a choice in five years. And it's, it's not about, you know, saying there's a great number, um, you know, that 20% woman in vice leadership or 30% is the right number. It's about seeing progress or comparing to peers or um, tying it into your goals that get you high ESG scores that you don't achieve because nobody's being able to track this. So it's uh, much like the standardization of fundamentals, right? You could not buy a standardized fundamental financial data set 20 years ago, very easily. Right. And it, it really, especially from a, a, a digital perspective or one where you could use an API or anything like that, that's much more recent. So we're, we're just 20 years behind and, you know, we, it, you know, ESG being separated as a set of data actually was a disservice because it was always considered secondary, right. Mm-hmm. By the traditional financial systems who were, you know, what we believe I don't, I don't study finance. I don't come from a traditional portfolio manager background. Um, a lot of our, our background research comes from governance and leadership science, right? So the academic world that studies how organizations are effective and how people work in those organizations to make them effective and how teams are effective. Um, and it's like it's taking really- Adam Grant's books and put them into... An investment methodology. Exactly. And so we that's what we're trying to do with this data, as opposed to trying to follow a traditional um, financial view. We're saying that's not as important as finding a, a well-governed, well-run team with a clear purpose. And we need we need to look at non-financials to assess that because financials alone don't tell us the whole story. I totally agree. I mean, I would think for a board, you also want your just going to that part of the puzzle, you would want your board to be representative of your consumer base and, you know, women and minorities and so forth. That would seem to make the most sense. I know sense is uh, logic doesn't rule. Do you see the day in the next decade where we see a, like a index created based on the, like some of those ESG metrics where, whether it's like uh, water usage, you know, so forth. Do you see that coming around sooner rather than later? There's a bunch of them floating around. Um, so MSCI and Selective are the two big ones. I think S&P's got some as well. And so they they started with um, fossil fuel free. Um, okay. So basically you have, let's say it's a five, let's say did, they did the S&P 500. They just removed, mm-hmm. I don't know, 50 or 100 of the highest emissions folks um, or weight them lower. So I know MSCI will keep the constituents in, but weight the ones with higher emissions lower. So those were kind of the first um, 
pseudo indexes to come out. Then they now they've moved into impact, which is really interesting. So hmm. now if you look MSCI and, and, and lots of people license them too. So MSCI is just the index provider here and Selective, but more of MSCI in Canada and the US um, have impact indexes. So impact is super interesting because what they do and, and what a lot of folks in impact do is say, okay, the revenue or the service that the company's providing is its impact, right? So if it's healthcare, if it's pharma, you know, the, the research that they're doing counts as impact, the, mm-hmm. the, the products that they're providing count as impact. Sorry. If it's Tesla, it's an electric vehicle, that counts as 100% impact. If they're making windmills, it counts as 100% impact. If they're providing, um, it, if they're providing real, real uh, commercial real estate with fully efficient, you know, uh, energy yeah, stuff. Like lead center, lead yeah, impact, but everybody else isn't impact because it doesn't fit nicely in a bucket. So there's some of these impact. So, so that's, so, so, you know, they face the same issue as, as active managers or, or whatever in ESG, which is, you know, when you look at just impact on the product or revenue, you ignore the impact that the organization makes on its stakeholders making the service or the product, right? The supply mm-hmm. chain, the shipping, the decent work, the pay, the the environmental negative externalities are not captured in that. When in fact, I'd argue in many cases, they are bigger impact, positive or negative, than the product output, right? So that's that that's where kind of the the and there's some good systematic strategies out there. That's where I generally point folks. I mean, there's some good active managers out there um, as well. But it's it's you know what we're what we were trying to do at Honeytree is it's not just about fossil fuel emissions. It's not just about gender right. equity. It's not just about anything. It's the whole thing. The whole thing matters. Um, and to, to every company, not just the innovative environmental tech ones or the ones coming up with, you know, AI to solve world problems, every company, um, whether it's, you know, making cleaning stuff or dog food or airplanes or whatever, they all play a huge role in economic capacity of women, economic capacity of uh, racialized populations in serving their customers, right? You mentioned on the board, like, of course you want decision makers to have some semblance or experience related to customers, but it's even more than that. It's if you have a, a, a group, a team, a board, doesn't matter, and everybody comes from the same experience, regardless of what they look like. If everybody went, came from Harvard, if, if your entire board came from the Ivy League, they are they are have blind spots. They have there's no outsiders there to ask the difficult questions or to see things from a different perspective. And and gender diversity, racial diversity, age, disability, LGBTQ, all of this stuff is it's not perfect. You could have a completely diverse board all again with the same experience, but at the same time, it's the most obvious way to add outsider experience, diverse knowledge, reduce risk on a team. Um, and so that that's what the academic research says. Um, but it is really, it's how are you going to sell makeup <laughs> with a board that's 65% dudes? Like I get it. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just throwing some of the Japanese companies under the bus. Actually they're, they're like seven out of eight dudes in some of the cosmetics and same thing with you know 
cars. Women buy a lot of cars, right? And and so it's not, and it's not, it's so, it's, it's, it's the whole organization. Right. You know, right, it, right. it's it's the frontline managers, it's the the technical folks, it's the regular employees. And in it's just a culture of inclusivity is hard. And more importantly, it you know, I, I throw all the big tech companies under the bus a lot because they have really nice websites for diversity. If you go look at Apple or Microsoft or any of those big guys, even Facebook, um, they have robust beautiful websites that look at all the diversity, except there's not very much change in the year over year. Right. And so mm-hmm. it, they're, they're just looking good on paper, right. For, for marketing reasons, for CSR reasons um, is kind of that that's one of the, I guess the bad things about ESG because all these asset managers are running around asking everybody about their ESG stuff. So everybody's like, Oh, we got to do all this ESG stuff, but that doesn't make you ESG. Right. Putting out a report and doing a bunch of stuff um, because a bunch of consultants and, and, and managers want you to. That's just I don't know. What's that lipstick on a pig? Yeah, right. So totally. that's like <laughs> that's like what most of this is. And that's the pushback from the end customer. The end customer looks at a portfolio, uh, whether it's active or systematic, doesn't matter. That's claiming to be ESG or impact and sees basically the top 10 that are in the index. And they're like, well, some of these companies aren't destroying the world, but as a whole, these are probably not the, the, the most stakeholder governed, you know, human centered companies on the planet. And so why is this, why are you guys trying to sell this as ESG? So that's what happens. And whether you're a Bill Brewster who thinks ESG is stupid looking at this portfolio or somebody like me, you know, trying to find an ESG portfolio, you see the same thing, which is, this is just a regular portfolio. This, this mm-hmm. is, this is a financial framework. That's kind of ESG light, they call it. So ESG light in the industry is when you definitely do some ESG research, but not the way we do it. And, uh, and, and so you get to claim that you're ESG as long as you bought the data you have somebody looking sort of at it and you sign the principles for responsible investing, which costs 2,500 bucks. Everybody signed in last year, except for us. Um, every asset manager, I swear in North America. And so, <laughs> but it's not, you can see any, any end client can see, you know, and what, what I tell big allocators who, who ask like at folks at pensions to ask their ESG folks is how does diversity or water use or any of the stuff fit into security selection? And the data is there and folks should be using it, but we're, you know, there's not that many portfolio managers who read CSR reports, but I can tell you it's all there, uh, you know, as long as you're not looking at the whole market. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant mess and marketing opportunity for a firm like ours. I don't think when we started, I didn't think I would spend my life um, clarifying real ESG, mm-hmm. but there really is a, you know, I, I have a benefit. I'm a millennial. I believe in this stuff. And I wasn't indoctrinated by traditional finance or I wasn't trained in traditional finance. So I can, I can come at it from an, I can see more easily where the the barriers of traditional finance are limiting folks ability to, to use this data. And then I can speak to it, um, which is pretty helpful because um, that's part of our sales pitch. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's important for the industry whether you're an advisor or allocator or, you know, other asset manager to know, 
like, we're not very good at responding to, we don't, in, in the investment industry, doesn't believe in customer insights as much as they should. And what I, my background is actually consumer insights. So I used to do market research for P&G and Nestle and the big banks who spent millions of dollars a year asking their customers what they thought about new positioning or branding or how they use the product. And we don't do that enough especially in the asset management world um, or the institutional right. world. And so that's why you have a lot of advisors saying, you know, oh, nobody asks me about ESG. Well, you know, there, there's a disconnect between or, or, or a lot of uh, there's a disconnect between what the end client wants and what advisors or institutions or OCIOs can see is available. Right. And and so there's a shift now. So there's there's real there's folks who've been taking this very seriously and have been ESG invested for years and years who are now realizing some of their stuff is ESG liked and they'd like to be in real ESG. Right. And there's a whole bunch of ways to do real ESG, but it's really that customer experience. Doesn't matter who that customer is, it's what their end needs are. And so mm-hmm. we need to be a lot better at listening to them instead of just per- prescribing solutions for them. And it's not about saying every every client should go through a specific little survey and answer all their ESG stuff. It's that, you know, we need those type of products. We need the direct index. We need the systematic. We need the active and ETFs and mutual funds to meet the various needs. But we need to, you know, there, there, are, there are lots of end customers like me who don't just want a gender equity or just want an environmental future, but we also need the 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 thematics right for the thematic investors so it but but we need to do a better job making the product as an industry match what the end client needs and that's that's what the next decade is about i hope um and it's not everybody's lots of people are not ever going to care about esg just like i'm never going to be a private markets investor it doesn't matter how cool it is i'm just i'm a public markets <laughs> investor no nothing in the private could make me do that and and so it's uh, in, in private ESG, super clear right now, super hot, very popular. And it's it's very easy to say its impact, right? Because the founder could be diverse. The team could be diverse. The product could be environmentally forward or the financial capacity, any, any of this stuff. Whereas in public markets, we're still trying to decide if a big company makes an impact, right? And, right. you know, it, it, if you look at it through the, the product or service lens, it might not be clear that that company makes an impact, but if you look at it, how many people is this company employing? Are they paying how above average wage are they paying? Like TSM. So we have TSM in our portfolio. It's our only Asian company because it's the only one with a sort of diverse board. Their average pays three times Taiwan's average wage, right? Similar to Costco's average US hourly pay is $25 an hour. Mm-hmm. Right. And their minimum 16 or 17. I can't remember now. They've all been changing it. And so we're going to have this data. And what does that mean? It means TSM can hire people more easily and Costco can hire people more easily and other companies get um, left. Anyways, I uh, it's it's so complex and it, it's going to be I mean, that's why we had to start now, because it's going to be a really exciting decade as the millennials, because I'm a geriatric millennial at, I think I'm turning 39 next week. Um, <laughs> not only us, but you know, the, the, my favorite stat, which is a little morbid, but all the boomer husbands are going to die a decade before their hippie boomer wives. Right. So we're going to go through two major wealth transfers of which both end clients have sat and gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finance industry. I guess you're okay. 
Um, and they're going to be the ones in control. And it, it, it's you can already see it happening um, in Canada and the U.S. in its every family office. Well, the next generation, well, the next generation is going to be in control of the money in the next 10 years so that you can ignore the next generation all you want. Um, in, in anyway, so that's 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 the my big wish is that we all as an industry, all of us start listening to the end client. Right. And I, I know folks like you are doing a good job um, and not thinking we have a great solution. We have a couple of good solutions, but we really need to learn more. We need to we need to throw out some of our traditional beliefs that limit our ability to, to serve the right product to the client. We need to get off our, you know, Wall Street, Bay Street suit. We're more important. And I, I love Patagonia Vess. Yeah, Patagonia Vest. Oh my God. That's the best <laughs> part. Patagonia banned the capital markets groups from buying branded um, vests. Like that's Pat- <laughs> Patagonia is the best um, purpose-driven stakeholder governed model of a company. Um, I, I, they would be in our portfolio if they were publicly listed, but that's, you know, that's they, what kind of company can make money? I have a coat that I'm actually sending back to Patagonia to fix the zipper. <laughs> what kind of company other than like a really, really well-run company can, can fix the old stuff and, and, and send it back to you because they don't want you to buy more. Right. And, and, and it gets a little confusing because folks would say that's like anti-capitalist, but it's not. They, they make great products and they last a long time. And, you know, we, I, I like to think we model honey tree after them other than we don't make any garments. Um, and we're not quite as cool. <laughs> well, that's like, that's like the company here in the States called TerraCycle. You know, they've started, and it's funny because, you know, like you said about companies, um, ad- adapting to the new customer. Um, because I know like, Procter Gamble, Bimbo Bakeries, things like that. Like they've created this partnership with TerraCycle. So like, you know, you buy the little muffins and the pouches and Bimbo Bakeries is like, Hey, yeah, send it back or send it to TerraCycle and they repurpose it and so forth. And you're seeing that pick up steam more and more. So I, I definitely think that it, the ESG met, you know, measurement tools are going to be imperative. But the one thing I wanted to ask, because we were talking about active and passive before, is how do you see like these passive investments, right? Like the, the index funds and so forth. How do they adapt to managing like, an, you know, an S&P 500? How do they adapt to managing or voting those proxies when it comes to these companies? Well, I'm going to mention the NASDAQ because they came out with, um, I think in October, sometime in the fall, a requirement that all NASDAQ listed companies will have gender plus other diversity um, in there on their boards um, or how to explain why they don't have that. So that's one of the ways that that the, the index folks and the, the various related entities um, as, as, as corporate leaders, as requirements, as, as part of, um, ongoing efforts to improve this kind of stuff. That's mm-hmm. one way they can participate. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm an active investor. I think most people in the world are better off in an S and P 500 ETF than most of the stuff that any of my competitors or folks, um, are selling. I'm kind of like Warren Buffett in that way. Um, <laughs> and just really, just really most people just buy the index, um, but I think, I mean, I think they'll probably end up with, uh, some of this stuff as requirements, right? I think mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if, 
in order to be in the S&P 500, you need two women on your board in five years. I wouldn't be surprised. Now, I think the the folks will get ahead of that. Um, but, you know, I think, I mean, they, they could have other requirements like re- required disclosure, right? You can't be in the S&P 500 or whatever until you've disclosed the Department of Labor stuff and you're properly reporting your emissions and things like that. So it, it, it'll be really interesting because they'll have the data. And, mm-hmm. and interestingly, S&P is one of the newer and actually better ESG data providers. Um, I, 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 I'm not a big fan of all of them because they're still providing ratings and we just don't use ratings. We use raw data. Um, but the S&P um, data set is one of the more advanced ESG data. Now that's separate business than they're in but at the same time, it's not right. It's the same company. So mm-hmm. it, it'll be really interesting um, what they do, what it, what, and S&P is doing those fossil fuel free and, and future environment pseudo indices right. now. Um, but it'll be, you know, there isn't, it, you know, the, will there be an S&P top 100 sustainable? index, right? Like that, you know, that's it. And that some folks are trying to kind of do things like that, like just capital, um, which I think is owned by Goldman Sachs or involved in there, um, does ratings and research like us and then puts together uh, index, right of the top mm-hmm. 100 or whatever. So there's a couple of those things around. But yeah, it'll be there's a so passive, you know, I run concentrated active because I don't want to hold the whole risk of the index. Um, that being said, there's lots of sections of the index you can hold that are much more risky than the index. Um, and, and so, but I, you know, I, I don't think it, I think true, true passive will, you know, will not be lost in any of this. It's just a question of how many iterations of things come out. And, and here's what a lot of folks will do. They'll public markets passive, right? 60, 80, 70% of your portfolio, 10 to 20% thematic or impact, mm-hmm. right? That's that's what a lot of institutions and, and folks, and that's a, a very uh, impactful, very reasonable approach to, to ESG, right? And, and for, for money reasons, for risk reasons, for a variety of different reasons. Um, and, you know, we that's where we do, uh, tend to fit in. It, we can also fit in, you know, not just somebody who allocates 100% to active, but they're, you know, they're running mostly passive, but then they look for satellite, um, you know, high active share stuff. And so, so they all, I th- I'm a big believer that they all work together. Um, but I do think that indices are going to start having some requirements and it'll be very interesting. Like, I, I like to say, like, if you don't have the proper guidance, yeah, the, the indexes, you know is a suitable uh, investment but like those people who are invest if they're big if their beliefs are centered around ESG is there going to be a continued disconnect between the asset managers and those shareholders of the investment like the the fund or the what have you or the asset manager is going to come and meet the, the institute those ESG principles on say an S&P 500 and drive it that way What's really interesting is the big passive providers um, get thrown under the bus a lot for their mm-hmm. votes on this stuff because you're so if you're buying an in, uh, you're buying a truly passive index, they may also be promising ESG engagement and voting on that passive index. In fact, they have, and so the issue is then 
are they really doing that? So that's that's one of the and, and that's how the big Canadian pensions who are ESG ESG <laughs> in air quotes justify holding every position in the world. Well, we're gonna go we're gonna go engage with the border prisons and try and make them better, right? So that's what right. they say, and so that's what BlackRock or whoever is running large passive because they have to vote on everything, especially now since everybody's looking and people are publishing the reports of how they voted, which is really funny. <laughs> um, and that, that's what the SEC is after, which I think is great, by the way. The new SEC regulations is not trying to decide what's ESG or not. It's just trying to say, hey, if you're going to claim to do ESG proxy voting and engagement, you damn well not be better, but you damn well better not be voting against disclosure of diversity data. Um, and in mm-hmm. fact, the SEC is pushing for the release of this Department of Labor data that I've been referencing um, at, at, for companies as a basic requirement. So they, in the, it's it, anyways, the SEC is uh, is moving in the right direction despite all odds um, on a lot of this stuff. But yeah, it's uh, it's uh, the whole thing's a mess. And really, I'm really glad the reports of the voting for all these big firms who, whether they're passive or active, I don't care if you're going to sell an ESG product. And you're going to vote against disclosure of diversity data. Your customers should know because yeah, that's not absolutely. what they're giving you money and, for. Yeah, that's what I was like, kind of like looking at. Because if you say one thing and you're doing acting in a different manner, then I mean, what's that? that what's the difference in that? And I guess like saying, oh, we're an S and P 500 funded investing in the Nasdaq. Yeah. You know, at the same time, it's gotten a little bit out of control. So we own Nike. Um, and Nike's done lots of bad things, but they're sort of pretty good at fixing them once in a while. Um, and they kind of stood up for racial. They just do it. Yeah. They're just, just doing it. Um, and they're, they've been a leading disclosure of diversity data. They actually have probably one of the higher portions of black vice presidents, um, and senior executives, um, out of any company, even though they're on the West coast in a state that does not have a large African-American population. Um, and they've disclosed their data for years and years, but this whole activist group who just goes around kind of throwing votes, which some are useful and some are not, but they're more targeted to the Teslas and those folks who've never released their diversity And the one data. thing I just want to piggyback on your activist, the one thing people need to understand is the difference in act, because we always hear activist investors. There's the activist investors that come in from private equity that are looking to pump up the company and sell. And then there's the activists who are looking to promote change. Sorry. Just wanted to make sure we're clear on that. Yeah, and sometimes they overlap. Um, <laughs> it's a little, um, but yeah. So Nike um, released a statement yesterday because now they have an, a group coming saying you guys need to release your diversity data, and so Nike goes straight to the SEC and was like, "This is ridiculous because we've been releasing our data for almost a decade." Um, and so there, there's it's kind of a very templated activity. Like when you look at the group that's going around on. Because because a lot of companies don't only sixty percent of companies mm-hmm. um, in in the U.S. were releasing any diversity data. So you have that whole forty percent chunk, and the problem is they're all in the ESG portfolios and the indexes. So all the engagement teams at the big places and the pensions, Calpers or whatever, need to go and vote properly because otherwise their stakeholders or customers are going to get pissed off. So everybody's been focused on this kind of shitty group of <laughs> companies who are incapable of reporting basic stuff that much smaller companies do all the time. And, and, but then it's like, you know, it, it becomes just a, 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 you know, there, you, you see this in some of the class actions and things that yeah. go around and it, there, there's a repetition there. So it, it's really funny. Cause you can like, it's, it's really easy to find this data. It, it, it shocks me. It, it takes 10 seconds. You open the sustainability report, you search gender or race. It goes straight to the page and they either produce nothing. 
So, so a lot of companies say 22% of our workforce is women on a whole page in a little circle graph. Yeah. That's their reporting. And then the good companies give you their five-year history by gender and racial diversity breakdown um, or three-year or whatever. Um, and it's it's the thing is they've been reporting it already. Anyways, that was just my my diversion of where yeah, the control, vote gets control F is a powerful tool. Oh yeah, it's uh, and there will be some new tools that actually get us close to standardizing and systematizing this data. Some AI stuff that all the teams trying haven't figured it out yet, but um, I'm excited for uh, it, it's really it's a data issue. Accenture in 2016 was the first tech company to report diversity data. So all of this in the tech world, which is I don't know what is that thirty percent, twenty five percent of our 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 companies. They're all just trying to figure that out now, right? And you have some more established industries, especially manufacturing related. That's why the semiconductors are so ahead on ESG because they have the manufacturing component where they had to like care about employee safety and kind of stuff. Whereas nobody at, 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 you know, Facebook cares about employee safety because they outsource all their unsafe jobs. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, it's 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 very complex, right? Because you mm-hmm. have passive versus active, and ESG versus non, and then impact, and then it kind of gets really confusing um, because it, it, it's I'm I'm not a big fan of saying ESG should be done differently for everybody. At the same time, we as product providers need to have the concentrated active, the semi concentrated. You know, the, we we need to provide the right, properly done set of ESG products for the folks that want them. And that's, that's what I think, you know, whether you're an advisor or manager or, you know, a salesperson, you're, 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 we're hopefully getting to a better, a better ability to communicate that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm seeing it with my clients, like the recognition of, you know, like, especially around pay, like the, like you mentioned Costco, happy employees translates to better customer experience and so forth. So, I was kind of wondering, like, because with active management, obviously everyone's bought for their screens, right? Like you have your screens, everybody has their screens. Have you ever come across a company that you're like, no way. And then you've come back and said, oh, they've made the reforms. We'll add them to our portfolio. I mean, that kind of describes our, a bunch of our companies. So we, that describes Costco. Okay. Um, so we, Costco did not qualify the first time, but it qualified the second time, but we didn't put it in to the portfolio. Um, and they actually hadn't disclosed the pay stuff at that time. Um, so we didn't have that information, although I guess I could have just asked. And I knew they were much higher paid. We knew they were much higher paid than their comparable, but they're still Costco and Palastic and Suburban and chickens. You know, <laughs> and my, my sister cuts up pigs for one of the world's largest pig menu like pig pig makers what do you call them pig uh, producers so it's uh, i i like to slaughterhouses slaughterhouse yeah 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 um uh, she manages the plants and stuff and the parts of the pigs Ho- hopefully that. not the ones that got hacked recently no when i sent them that i sure <laughs> your systems are um my my other sister works for campbell soup actually uh, um they're both in the, the that's food business good um so costco <laughs> Costco got added to our portfolio after the mask thing last spring. 
because they stood up for their employee safety. It doesn't matter whether masks are right or bad. Who cares about that? But what they said is, you know what? The only thing that matters here is our employee safety because if they're all sick and die, we're toast because that's how they think. Right. That's that's their entire thought process. And so they were the first to mandate and and defend their employees who got into battles. And so that 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 was kind of like a Colin Kaepernick moment. I mean, a little different and not, uh, you know, about racial equity or anything like that. But it it proved that here's the thing with Costco. Costco does not have a big advertising department and they certainly don't have a big they don't even have an esg team and they don't have a csr team right they are not interested in even i mean you look at their emails are like written like they're awful they're like bank email in terms of formatting um you know their sales emails so they've never they have not spent much energy in the past five years filling out all these stupid esg forms that everybody needs you to submit globally so that you get ranked and rated and so when you go into esg data set and you look at a company like Costco, and this is true of Illinois, Illinois Toolworks, by the way, they don't have a big retail facing, they get blanks on a lot of the things. So they end up with lower scores. But the thing is, they're actually better on a lot of those blanks than a lot of companies who have higher ratings than them. And I use um, Loblaw, so Canadian grocery stores, in most systems, even though they openly fought minimum wage increases a couple of years ago, even though they still have not provided any masks to their employees, even though they absolutely pay minimum wage and they keep their employees under part-time so they don't have to pay them benefits, they almost all score higher than Costco in all the rating systems. Hmm. Yet Costco's average wage is like, again, $25 in Canada for the average employee. And whereas it's like minimum wage and their minimum wage is higher, but they just don't fill out the reports properly. They don't write out their goals of gender diversity. And it's interesting, 65% of Costco's managers are women. Hmm. So Costco's making a huge impact in the communities it employs through economic capacity in decent, decent work that that it's not easy work being cashiers. I was a cashier right. for one year. It was honestly one of the hardest jobs of my life. And I, I was an elite athlete at the time. And I've never been in such physical pain as when I was a cashier. And it wasn't even food and groceries. But <laughs> they understand where their bottom line comes from, which is me as a customer in store interacting with the employees. Their employees are enabled. They're, 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 they're basically all managers. They're basically, they understand why they're there. Mm-hmm. And that's just a clear purpose driven stakeholder governed company that actually makes money. Like that's the thing you can, you can still make money while caring about people because the people are who pay you money, right? Like I, I, I'm a, I'm a obnoxious customer. If I have a bad experience somewhere, I'll talk about it forever. I'll refuse to go. That's how a lot of us make decisions. And we go back to a place, whether it's a, a website like Netflix or Fintwit or um, Costco, because we understand um, what they're doing. We feel part of the community. We mm-hmm. we're part of their purpose. We're, we're a shared stakeholder. And then I go and talk about Costco to everybody. Right. Like that's that's how they do. And that's, you know, that's it's it, they don't do the fancy marketing. They don't do the look good in a brochure marketing, but they do the right marketing, which is stakeholder engagements, the hardest marketing. Um, and that's that's what an, you, you're a sports guy. You understand this. Mm-hmm. Teams, teams are not the sum of their superstars. They're a shared agreement towards a shared goal that is decided by the team, whether they are eight year old peewee baseball players or you know a big giant board at a mega cap 
and, 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 and the whole organization mm-hmm. related to that and how a team um, succeeds is, is through that work. And that's why we bring in governance and leadership science. And we don't just say it's all about ratios and financials because it's not, it's every company is a team. Oh yeah. That's, and, that's exactly like her in the movie miracle, her Brooks, right. He said that, right. He said, uh, they said, you left the best players off of the team. He said, and I'm not looking for the best ones. I'm looking for the right ones. Yeah. And that's how, that's how well-run companies are managed. And yep. that's why the, the big banks and asset managers have some issues because they, they're still living in a, you know, <laughs> this, it's like work from home. The real tech companies who are going to retain people went a hundred percent work from home a year ago because they are not going to lose their $400,000 a year folks to right, some right. other tech company. Um, because that's their their biggest cost, right? Is is having those folks poached, and so they 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 could measure it that the productivity was still there, unlike the banks, who you know everybody needs to be in a cubicle. And but the thing is, it's they're they're looking at the negative externalities, right? So these tech, I'm going to use Shopify as an example, right? They understand that they they're going to have to produce their commuting yeah. miles, right? Like the banks, that's Morgan Stanley or whoever doesn't understand is. Eventually, we're going to be reporting employee commuting miles. We're already reporting employee business travel. So all the companies in our portfolio report business travel miles year oh, over wow. year. And so we're looking for a reduction in that, right? Because there's not only cost issue, environment, like traveling. I love traveling. Mike, I can't wait till I get to come visit you. But traveling is hard, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, traveling yeah. is physically Especially hard. Especially now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's impossible now. But it's, you know, it's not... Um, uh, and, and I, I've done a lot of business travel in my career, but it's, and, and we have to travel. I'm not anti-travel, but at the same time, uh, it, we as a firm, like uh, Honey Tree, like will, we haven't done it yet because there wasn't really emissions that we used last year. So I didn't want to put together an emissions report, but we'll be able to like, as, as a firm, as we grow in it, and a lot of, a lot of ESG managers are using this or, you know, o- OCIOs and things like that where we we report our diversity, we report our business travel, we report our emissions. We, I mean, we're not going to report our waste because we're not big enough and we don't have an office. But folks are reporting their plastic bottle waste in the office or so reducing that kind of stuff. And it's, it's not, you can see how it's both the bottom line and employee engagement and being good for the world, right? Like right. It's, it, it's so much more than just doing it to be good. So what do you think about like, you know, we talked about customer experience. What what do you think about companies like Chipotle now on their app where they show like me as a consumer what I'm doing to help the environment? Do you think that's the future to drive that engagement? Yes. I mean, it. I don't. So in Canada, we've had a very aggressive farm to table, local 100 kilometer food movement um, for most of my adult life. Um, not, not organic, mm-hmm. um, but very much food grown in Ontario or you go to Newfoundland, by the way, everybody should go to Newfoundland. The <laughs> food there is amazing. It's so locally, it's just brilliant and way cheaper than Toronto. So it, I think, I think it's, it, it comes from, you know, so that comes from, it's not just about eating good tasting food. It's about reducing the shipping distance right. and the shipping emissions and improving the quality because it's shipped over a short distance and eating local naturally like a, a what do you call it? A native species in, in, in grown. And so it, I think that's, that's, that's actually a good proxy for where 
the ESG world will go, I think. I mean, that's kind of what we're betting. It's not going to be like one specific thing. It's we have to, you know, we can't just make everything organic, right? And ignore the fact that we're flying food from South America and stuff. It's so much more complex than that. And and the end consumer will get there in investing too. I pulled up mine and it was like, uh, the metrics are less carbon in the atmosphere, supported organic land, antibiotics avoided, gallons of water saved, improved soil health. So I think it's pretty neat. I, I mean, for me, I've never that deep into these types of things, but it's kind of cool to see your action correlated with a uh, result. And, yeah, and that's the impact, yeah. right? So when you look at and we... We don't we don't call ourselves an impact strategy, but we are. We're looking for positive net impact. We're measuring negative externalities. I mean, that's really what we're looking at. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how you measure those. It's you as a consumer, you know, Honey Tree has 80% less emissions than the index, right? So if you wanted to reduce the emissions exposure, same thing with food. And and the question with a company like Chipotle is how are they leading, you know, and, and Costco's got this problem too. Everybody wants $6 chickens. I buy the $6 chickens. They're a really good deal. They're really bad for the earth. So is most <laughs> of the stuff that we do, right? How do they make that more sustainable, make the chickens healthier, make the land healthier, make the whole thing less pollutant, all that kind of stuff. So they play a role. Chipotle plays a role. The All the food, you know, uh, Maple Leaf Food. So that's who my sister works for, um, the big pork producer, um, and we actually own Maple Leaf Foods in our Canadian equity strategy, even though it's one of those ones I would have like five years ago been like the, the least ESG company in the world. Um, but what they're doing is so their purpose is to be the most sustainable meat company on the planet. Um, and they they make light life. So I don't know if you've seen light life, but it's the no. competitor to Beyond Meat. So they're okay. making a whole bunch of the pork company, pork and chicken company is making and selling more importantly and making money off of fake meat. Um, but they also are leaders in, because this is the state of our animal production world, sows, when they have their babies, I think I got that, like a, <laughs> a, a woman pig, <laughs> female pig, sows, when they have their babies, were confined. Um, and so Maple Leaf's one of the first to give them um, like full-size pens, which is kind of awful. At the same time, like that's progress in, uh, in, in how we, we mass consume meat. Um, and I can be like, I am with, you know how I get really angry about everybody talking about electric vehicles. And I'm like, subways, why don't people talk about subways and us? And I'll always be like, my husband and I, my husband's a very big man who loves hamburgers and steak and all that stuff. But we eat vegetarian a lot because of the environmental impact and the health impact. Right. And we love the taste of chickpeas and beans and all that stuff. So it's, it's very complicated and the brand engagement around impact, what Chipotle is doing is huge. That's why Nike and Adidas are making all the shoes out of seaweed and ocean plastic. Mm-hmm. It's because we care. Like we know I, we can either pay trillions of dollars to clean up the ocean plastic or we can use ocean plastic to make our plastic stuff. Like those are the only two options. We've already created a giant problem. Um, and I think everybody understands that. I think, when I talk to the energy Twitter guys, the folks in Texas, they get that, mm-hmm. right? I think, I'm not sure Wall Street gets it. I'm not sure Wall Street has ever thought super deeply about the plastic ecosystem and stuff. Yeah. Um, no, I but, don't think so. <laughs> but, the, but the energy guys have, right? The My mom has, the, you know, everybody outside of traditional finance has. So we're, we're just behind 
because we're we're an old school industry of dudes in suits holding up tradition. And the good news is, I think, between the millennials and the boomer spouses, the whole thing will get turned on its head. And I think the RIAs in the U.S. are hugely placed for this and the innovative teams at the warehouses. And, you know, you, you already see it in institutions. So New York State has gone fossil fuel free. New York State pensions not only are fossil going fossil fuel free as we speak, they have the largest allocation to diverse owned managers. So they have their 100 billion, 20 billion, so 20% of their assets are managed by woman or minority owned firms, which is, I don't know, a quadrillion times ahead of basically every other institutional manager, give or take um, a couple foundations out there. And uh, who is it? Texas. Oh, Texas is fighting right now because the Texas government's trying to like Texas is one of the leaders in uh, in diverse and emerging managers investing, and <laughs> and Texas, the government's or the, whoever right now, I think I don't think it went through, is trying to ban pensions in Texas from looking at ESG, which is funny. I don't think they look at ESG very much, but they're one of the leaders in diverse managers, which is ESG, right? Whether whether the team at BlackRock gets more diverse, whether the team at Honeytree gets more diverse, whether the Wirehouse Breakaway team is more diverse, it's it's the whole thing. So it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a very interesting uh there's just so many parts yeah i mean it's it's one of those things that you know people are here and and that's why i, I thank you so much for coming on and talking about all this and i mean we'll have to we'll have to do another round because this is going to be prevalent in some way shape or form. you could see it in some of the companies coming to list like you're talking about like the uh, plastics, you know, that's been in the news more and more single use plastics. So I, I'm really going to be curious to see, you know, how things evolve. And, you know, I know I remember 20 years ago when this stuff like first started, like the social responsible, things like that. And we're here, it's growing. So it'll be interesting to see how the uh, things evolve in the next five, 10, 20 years. And I thank you so much for your time today and look forward to, you know, hopefully having you back to uh, dive into this some more. Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. It's my favorite topic and uh, it was great to chat about it with you. And, and next time we'll get into the specifics of how smoking meats is not ESG friendly. Or barbecue. Barbecue yeah, is not ESG friendly, <laughs> but it tastes very good. Yes, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. To continue the conversation, visit us at our blog, financial-recon.com. Appearances do not constitute endorsement of flagship wealth management group, LPL Financial, or any other entity discussed in this program. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax or legal advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific situation with a qualified tax or legal advisor. Liz Simi and Honeytree Investment Management are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Flagship Wealth Management Group.